It is good to be back with you, Saints of Redeemer. I thank you so much for all of the notes of encouragement and, uh, and phone calls and prayers uh, that my family received this past week and a half as we were making our way through COVID. Uh, we thank you for your prayers for us, but it's good to be back uh, and be with you. Today we are rejoining our studies in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, we're going to be picking up in verses uh, verse 10, and reading through verse 16 again. Uh, before we do that, I have one more announcement and one more prayer to add to our time of prayer. Uh, so as you're making your way toward Malachi, you can listen with one ear and look uh, with your eyes, I suppose, for the page you're looking for. But we have uh, typically at this time every year recognized some of the graduates in our uh, church uh, who are graduating either from high school or from college. And this year, if Pastor Andrew's list is correct, we have two of them. Uh, if that list is incorrect, we'll blame him because he's gone. Uh, but we have, uh, we have two graduates this year, Samuel Curran and Luke Hatton. And uh, we have just a, a little gift uh, of recognition for you. Surprise, surprise, it's books. Uh, but it's good books that I hope will be a blessing to you uh, as you leave your home in different capacities and go out to school and to work and the various things that the Lord has for you. And so please see me after the service. But as we pray for the, uh, the illumination of God's spirit on our reading, uh, we're also going to pause for a moment and pray for Luke uh, and uh, for Samuel. Well, as I mentioned, we are uh, again in Malachi. We have a few visitors with us, so you have caught us uh, in the midst of a study through this minor prophet. And the, uh, the section that we're in right now is a, a bit of a heavy section. Uh, we began several weeks ago, intending to finish up last week, but again, uh, COVID happened, and we're a week off schedule. Nevertheless, we're looking in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, uh, on twin sins that were plaguing the people of Israel at the time, the sins of improper marriages outside the faith of Israel, and the sin of improper divorces among those who ought to be staying together. Uh, today, we're going to focus particularly on verses 13 to 16 and look at this question of the improper divorces that were among the people. Now, I have found uh, from preaching on the issue of marriage and divorce in the past that no matter what a pastor has to say and no matter how much a pastor says in a single sermon on marriage and divorce, he will never say as much as needs to be said for some people. Uh, these are questions that hit close to home for many of us, and these are passages sometimes that raise more questions than they answer. And so as helpful as I hope this study together is going to be, if you are one of those people in the congregation today and you come away from this passage saying, but what about this and what about my life? I would love to talk to you more. I'd love to offer any further godly counsel that we can find together in God's word. We can't say all that we need to say about marriage and divorce from this one passage. And so again, if, if this raises more questions than it answers, please come to me and, and let's talk together and let's see God's wisdom for marriage in his word in other places as well. Well, Malachi chapter 2, uh, reading verses 10 to 16, before we read this passage, Let's go to the Lord together, and let's seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Father, we thank you for the work that you do among your people. Gracious Lord, we thank you for these young men that you have raised up for Samuel and Luke. We thank you for bringing them through their high school years and preparing them for various things that you have for them. Lord, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord who directs the course of your people wherever you choose. You lead your people through 
the wilderness wandering sometimes, and you lead your people often by still waters, but you always lead your people to yourself. Gracious Father, we pray that as you lead Samuel, as you lead Luke, that you would indeed be doing those things. You would be leading them to yourself, teaching them more and more, growing them in godliness uh, and godly manhood, that they would be men who seek after your own heart. Bless them. Uh, in this time of graduation and moving on, we pray that this would be a transition, uh, not only from childish things, but into the maturity of the gospel. And we pray that you would bless them as they follow you and study your word. So, Lord, we pray that you would do the same as we open Malachi together. Gracious Father, by your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom by your word. Help us to see these things that you have for your people. Help us to see not only the faithfulness that you call us to, but above all the faithfulness you have for your children. Gracious Father, thank you for your Son, and we pray that through this passage we might see more of him and know more of the one whom our soul desires. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together now Malachi chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 10. <clears throat> Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, well, back in uh, 2014, National Review ran an article that you might want to file under the category of the right idea for the wrong reasons. Uh, Larry Kudlow was the author, and, and he wrote, beginning with a question, want to help America's economy and yourself at the right time? Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, want to help America's economy and yourself at the same time, he said, then get married. Men who marry, research has shown, are more productive at work, are paid better, are more likely to be employed than their, by, than their unmarried counterparts. He went on to quote an economist, uh, an economist who said that marriage is, quote, a far better social program than food stamps, Medicaid, public housing, or even all of them combined. And finally, the article concluded that to restore the vigorous economic growth that built America's middle class, we first need to restore the pro-growth institution of America, of marriage, excuse me. I think I still have COVID brain. I missed quite a few there. 
He says we need to restore the pro-growth institution of marriage to restore the vigorous economic growth that built America's middle class. Again, uh, maybe the right idea for the wrong reasons. Perhaps if you wanted to look at it from what is essentially the other side of the same aisle, uh, you could go to the Associated Press. They published a different article from a different vantage point. This one was titled, Mother Nature Feels the Pain of Divorce. Well, this uh, article wasn't about the economy, but ecology. An ecologist shared his findings that where divorce rates are high, so too is the environmental impact of multiple households. It's a pretty simple hypothesis. The thought goes that whereas a married couple uh, powers only one refrigerator, divorcees have to power two. And where there is a married household, they only have to heat one home, whereas those who are divorced have to heat at least two. You get the idea. Higher divorce rates equal larger carbon footprints. I suppose if you want to find them, there are any number of practical, pragmatic reasons why we could point to marriage being a good thing and divorce being a bad thing. Marriage is good for the economy. Divorce is bad for the, uh, for the environment. Marriage is good for your social calendar. Divorce is bad for your self-esteem. Marriage is good for your blood pressure. Divorce is bad for your waistline. But even if all of those statements were true, they could only ever be, at best, half of the story. Several weeks ago, when we first began looking at this section of Malachi together, we began with the premise that it is not enough to approach marriage and divorce simply in terms of what is pragmatic, what is useful. Now, marriage is a human relationship, it's true, but marriage is a human relationship given to humanity by God. It's an institution given to us to meet God's goals and his purposes for his people. And so regardless of what we might learn from the economists and the sociologists and all the relationship experts, marriage for God's people will always remain a theological issue. It's a spiritual question. Who we marry, why we stay married, must always be built on what we believe about the God who made us. It must be approached in the context of how we live in order to bring glory to him. Marriage is a spiritual issue. And that means if we're to think rightly about marriage and divorce, we need to begin with the spiritual truth of the matter. We need to begin with the institution that God has given us and the intention that he has for our marriage. God's intention for marriage is quite simply that it would be a blessing for us. This is our first point today, that there is a blessing in godly marriage. Now, the last time we looked at Malachi, we began noticing uh, this broken fellowship between Israel and the Lord. It shows up in verse 13 that Israel is pouring out tears at God's altar. Uh, they're crying out that God would receive their offerings, and yet the Lord does not receive their offerings. And the Lord points to the broken fellowship uh, that comes about because of their covenantal faithlessness. We looked particularly last time at verse 10 concerning faithlessness of the marriages that they're engaging in outside of Israel. And then there is verse 14 talking about the faithlessness of divorcing wives that they should have kept. And so when Israel is suffering broken fellowship with the Lord, the Lord points back and says, your problem really is all of your broken promises. 
so far a review of what we've already seen. But in verse 14, there is this new concept that the Lord introduces into this conversation. And it is the idea that in all of our covenants with one another, it is God himself who oversees our promises and holds us to our word. Look at verse 14 again with me. But you say, why does he not accept our offerings? God's answer, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That key word there is witness. God is a witness between husbands and wives, but he's not a witness in the way that we typically think of the term. The last time you were at a wedding, I bet the minister began at the start of the ceremony by uh, telling you, dearly beloved, we are gathered together today in the presence of God and these witnesses. And it's nice to be a witness at a wedding. It's nice to be there to see that first flower of married love. And you love to be a witness at a wedding. You have the chicken and your wife has the fish and you eat your piece of cake and you go home and you're a witness. And you never expect that six months down the line, you're going to be the one getting the midnight phone call, helping these newlyweds to work through the inevitable issues that they're having in their marriage, because you were just a witness. You were just a wedding guest. You were just there to see what was happening. That is not what the Lord has in mind when he says he is a witness. He's not a spectator on the sidelines. Notice that God says he is not a witness of a husband and a wife, but a witness between a husband and a wife. Douglas Stewart points out that in the ancient world, the job of a covenant witness had some pretty well-defined uh, necessities to it. There, there was something to be done if you were an official covenant witness. He says the job of the covenant witness was that of an enforcer. The covenant witness was the third party who could and did make sure that the parties to the covenant kept its terms. And that's what God means when he says he's a witness. He is a witness between husbands and wives. He is a witness in the midst of their marriage. He is the one who holds his people accountable to what marriage is supposed to be. And that's a good thing. Because God has good plans for our marriages if we will stick to his program. He has a good intention for what marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a blessing. There are at least two blessings that we see in this passage that we can draw out, uh, that the Lord highlights for us in the, these verses. The first blessing, I believe, is a blessing of lasting fellowship. Notice the language. In verse 14, that the Lord uses to describe this, uh, this union between a husband and a wife. God says first that the man was bound to the wife of his youth. Now that speaks uh, of dedication. Imagine a young couple just starting out in life together. Their, their whole lives are before them. And then imagine that same couple uh, a decade, two decades, three decades on. And the tenderness of thinking the wife of your youth, the husband of your young age, the one you've been with and lived together and shared everything with, and there's this tenderness that ought to be there, the wife of your youth, says the Lord, and speaks of dedication. God also calls her the wife by covenant, and that's a pledge of faithfulness. You know the words, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sick and for healthy. 
the covenant ought to be the promise that looms larger than all those changing circumstances, larger than all of those aging bodies and those, uh, those temporarily prickly moments that we have in our marriages. This covenant, this promise of faithfulness ought to be a commitment that binds a couple together just the way that God's commitment to his church binds him to his bride. It ought to be a promise that is unbreakable. So you see the tenderness that God is giving here, the wife of your youth, the wife by covenant, but most profoundly perhaps in this context, God says the wife was meant to be the man's companion. It's a pretty uh, common word in the Old Testament, companion. It means simply a friend. Very often it shows up in context where there are friends that are uh, gathered together seeking the same objective, a sort of brothers in arms that always carries with it just this idea of camaraderie and companionship and a shared objective. But what's unique about uh, this word showing up here in Malachi is that this is the only time in all the scriptures that this word shows up in the feminine form. Every other place in the Old Testament, this word for a friend always means a man with another man, a sort of buddy kind of friendship, a sort of uh, brotherhood together, and now it shows up in the feminine form. That seems normal and natural to us from where we sit, but we can forget how radical it would have been just to see this word in the feminine uh, in this culture in this day and age. Imagine just the idea that husbands and wives are something more than merely co-laborers together in the same family. That they ought to share more than just the duties and the chores of, of running a household. Imagine the idea that they ought to share their deepest convictions. That they ought to have their strongest commitments uh, in common. The idea that husbands and wives should be able to sit together and have deep and meaningful, stimulating conversation. This is a new and a radical idea among the pagans surrounding Israel at this time. The idea that companionship is not only something that's good in a marriage, but something that ought to be sought out, something that ought to be cultivated and nurtured. This is not an idea that the secular world invented. This is God's blessing in marriage. This lasting fellowship that is supposed to be there for the husband and the wife, this is God's goodness for his people. In fact, it's also God's answer to mankind's very first problem. You remember all the way back in Genesis in the garden when man was first created, before sin ever entered the world, everything was good and very good except for one thing. Genesis chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. There's a problem. What is God's answer to the problem of man being alone? Think of the ways that that verse could have been completed. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will give to him a wingman. I'll give him a buddy. I will give him a sidekick like Tonto for the Lone Ranger, somebody to come alongside of him and help him out, and they can go on adventures together. It's not good that man should be alone. I will give to him a board of directors. What he needs is wise counsel so that he can achieve all of the things that I've set out for him to achieve. What he needs is, is, is a group of people to help him decide how to sort out all the problems of the world. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make for him an Xbox. 
I will give him hobbies. I will give him diversions. I will give him things to achieve so that he will feel good about himself, so that he'll be entertained, so that his time will be occupied. It's not diversions or hobbies or directors or pals or buddies. The Lord gives the man a helper fit for him. As Malachi puts it, the Lord gives him a companion. The Lord gives him a friend. It's one of the lasting uh, blessings that marriage is meant to have for God's people. It's meant to give us fellowship. Secondly, though, along the lines of these blessings, I think the Lord also gave us marriage to cultivate godly families. Take a look at verse 15. It says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Here's another echo of the garden, isn't there? God is pointing back to his original intention. Genesis chapter 2, verses 22-24 tells us that the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's the language there. Didn't he make them one? Didn't he bring them together? Weren't they united together? It's the pattern that God gave to humanity at the beginning. And it has been the pattern throughout all of humanity. And we can think of all of our, uh, our pragmatic reasons why this ought to be the case. Why this is what we're supposed to follow. Any number of practical reasons why lifelong heterosexual monogamy is the only legitimate form of marriage among humanity. We could come up with our arguments, but God's plan was something much better than we could imagine. God's plan was fruitfulness. God's purpose in uniting the man and the woman and bringing them together was to fulfill the first commandment that he gave them in the garden, that they should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That was God's goal for marriage. Not just to be a context for for relationship and companionship and friendship, but also to be the context in which children could be brought up in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That seems to be the most natural way to understand this reference of a, a portion of the Spirit in their union. In other words, God blesses the homes of his married children with his very own presence. He gives a sort of stability in the home where godly marriages are made and maintained, and he does it for the sake of the children who are raised in that home. This is a hard thing for us, perhaps, to to wrap our minds around, but we know from many other places in Scripture that God tells us he is committed to spreading his gospel message through faithful households. And so the Lord spoke to Abraham. He said, I'm going to be a God to you and to your children after them throughout their generations. And so Psalm 103 tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, excuse me, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. It shouldn't surprise us that God's plan for generations of faithful believers runs straight through households, it runs straight through marriages that honor the Lord's desire for fruitfulness. Now, if we're honest, the problem that most of us have with this this passage is that it just seems so old-fashioned, practically archaic from where we're sitting to, to believe that God expects, not just intends, but expects 
believing husbands and wives to get married and to have children and to raise them in the Lord. Even among believers, this is beginning to become a strange idea in this world where we make of marriage everything that we want it to be. We read Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, and we have this twinge in the back of our mind that if we take this too seriously, that's how you end up on a reality TV show. You've got your 17 kids and counting, and everybody looks at you and says, what happened? Well, I read Malachi. God says he wanted faithful families, and, and he wanted godly offspring, so we just kept on going. And what worries us about this passage is that what would happen to us and to our plans if we took God's word seriously? Increasingly, even in the church, children are seen as an optional accessory. Maybe a couple will have kids, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll have a few kids, but then they'll stop because that's all they have room for. That's all that they can afford to send to college. I know, of course, that the Lord is sovereign over the size of our families. I believe that, and I trust that, and I also know that there are some painful situations for those who wish they could have children or wish they could have had more children, and the Lord had other plans for them. And there's no shame in what the Lord has brought to our families. We can trust him with the size of our families, but I think it's also worth asking whether we are willing in our marriages to call a blessing what the Lord calls a blessing. It's worth asking whether we think of our marriages in terms of our own plans and our own fulfillment, or whether we see our families as an opportunity to spread the gospel one generation at a time. Uh, Martin Luther said it far more pungently than I would be willing to, so I'll quote him here. Uh, he says, the purpose of marriage is not pleasure and ease, but the procreation and education of children and the support of a family. And that people who do not like children are swine and blockheads because they despise the blessing of God, the creator and author of marriage. Well, we're at the point where the sermon is bordering on the edge of meddling. And so I'll simply stop here and uh, rehearse what we've learned thus far. So far, we have learned that marriage doesn't only belong to us. It's a covenant with three parties. And God is looking over and watching over our marriages to direct them in the, uh, the pattern that he would have us to go. Marriage is meant to be us, for us a blessing of fellowship. And it's meant to be a place to build godly families. That's the blessing of a godly marriage. And that prepares us to see uh, the second point. Because once we've understood the blessing of a godly marriage, we're ready to understand the sin of an easy divorce. It's our second point, the sin of an easy divorce. Now, despite all the wonderful things uh, that we see about marriage and learn about marriage in this passage, the reality is that the context of this passage is not an encouragement but a condemnation. God is taking his people to task, not for the ways that they are walking in paths of righteousness, but he's calling them back from their wilderness wanderings. He's exposing what has gone wrong, and he exposes what's wrong by showing them what they have missed. So verse 14 speaks of faithlessness to the wife by covenant. Verse 16 speaks more clearly with the language of divorce, or as the Hebrew has it, a putting away. 
That's how the Hebrew speaks of a divorce. It's a putting away. It's a reshelving, if you will. It's, it's like taking that sweater that looked good at first, but then it turned out that it itched in all the wrong places. And so it's still within that 30-day policy, and you take it back because you kept the receipt. It's a putting away. And if people can think so little of this great blessing that God is giving to us for our good, it explains why the Lord speaks in such strong language about what we get into when we go in the way of divorce. So despite the softer way that our ESV translation handles verse 16, I think actually there's a lot to be commended for a translation like the New American Standard Bible. Here in verse 16, the NASB says this, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Actually, that's a pretty good treatment of the text. Our problem, as usual, is that when we read the text that way, it rubs us in the wrong direction. Because in our sinful flesh, we have a reflex against a text like that because it seems so unnuanced. It seems like it doesn't leave the door open for real-life circumstances that we find ourselves in, that our friends find themselves in. And what about a little bit of leeway? What about a little room for, for gray areas? God hates divorce, it tells us. And we say, wait a minute, what about divorce for the case of adultery? What about divorce for the case of abandonment? What about uh, divorce because of abuse? And because these issues are always painful and always personal, we want God's commandment to be a bit more broad than it sometimes is. But that's not the word that the text gives us. It's not a broad word. It's a narrow word. It says that God hates divorce. God hates all of it. He hates every single one of them. There is not a single divorce in the final analysis that is pleasing in God's sight. God hates divorce. This is a far cry, by the way, from saying that God hates divorced people. And yes, there are passages in Scripture that we can't throw out where we're told reasons why divorce may be a legitimate option. It is permitted sometimes. Sometimes divorce is a severe mercy for God's people who are caught in cycles of being sinned against again and again. So even our Savior, Matthew chapter 19, he agreed that in a case of adultery, divorce is allowed. And Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, says that divorce is allowed in a case of abandonment. But we have to remember there is a difference between what God allows and what God intends. That was the message Jesus gave the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What is divorce according to our Savior? It's a contingency plan. It's a fail-safe. It's put in place to protect the vulnerable from being sinned against. Sadly, sometimes it is necessary to do just that, but it was never God's intention from the beginning. That means that in God's eyes, according to the scripture, there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. That's one of the lies that our contemporary culture wants to tell us, that you can have a divorce and no one is to blame. 1970, California was the first state to legally allow parties to sue out a divorce 
and, and, and cite a no-fault divorce. No one was to blame. We just had irreconcilable differences. 1970, it first happened. Today, every single state in America allows for a no-fault divorce. 18 states do not allow parties to sue out a divorce for a reasonable cause. In other words, it's the law of the land in 18 states that you cannot have a divorce and blame it on the fault of any one party or any one thing. You just have to say, we couldn't get along. It's the law of the land. When a marriage ends, no one is to blame. Everyone is okay. Nothing is wrong. We just couldn't work it out. But Jesus says from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, God hates divorce. And he hates it because it always involves the rejection of his pattern and his intention. It always comes about as the result of our sin. Sometimes, as in the case of an adultery, there is sin that leads to divorce becoming an option. Other times, it's the divorce itself that is the sin that God hates, but either way you slice it, there's no such thing. as a no-fault divorce. There's no divorce that is pleasing to the God who intended for marriage to last a lifetime. Now, this is especially true when, when divorce makes a victim of those who are vulnerable. This seems to be the situation in Malachi's day. There seems to be a connection between the, the divorces that are happening in verse 16 and the marriages that were going on in verse 11. That is that the men, particularly of Malachi's day, but today the situation could be broadened uh, with, with various legal options open. Uh, the men in Malachi's day are discarding their wives in order to get new ones. They're taking the women and the families, perhaps, that they had covenanted to care for and provide for and to watch over uh, and to protect, and they are putting them to the side. They are returning them. They're putting them away in order to open up new opportunities for themselves. And the Lord says that when they do this, they are covering their garments with violence. That's the language in verse 16. The one who does that covers his garment with violence, it's like the saying that we have, you've got blood on your hands. You're guilty, and everybody knows it. This contradicts the second lie that our culture tells us about divorce. The first lie is that divorces can happen and no one is to blame. The second lie is that divorces can happen and no one will get hurt. Right? It's, it's one of the ways that we sell things to ourselves. I can do this. It won't be too bad. We'll make it through on the other side. In fact, we might actually be better off if we're apart than we would be if we're together. And there is a whole cottage industry uh, of books and articles and consultation fees promising to show you how to have a, quote, emotionally healthy divorce. And there are psychiatrists and there are psychologists promising to, to teach you how to teach your children to thrive through a divorce. Offering to teach you how to, to use and leverage the power of co-parenting to make your family situation stronger on the other side of a broken marriage than it was within the marriage. This is how we sell things to ourselves, but despite the sales pitch, we all know that it's not true. You know that it's not true if you know any children whose parents are going through a divorce right now. You know it's not true if you, like I, are a child of divorce yourself. If you grew up spending your nights and your weekends and your childhood Christmases bouncing from address to address, you know that it's not true. Even the unbelieving world 
agrees that divorce exists somewhere on the order of a traumatic injury. Margaret Atwood wrote that divorce is like an amputation. You survive, but there's less of you. And the statistics tell us that it's true. And the statistics bear out the fact that children who come from broken homes are far more likely to repeat that same cycle in their own marriages when they enter into them later. And we could mount up our arguments and our pragmatic reasons. But God's spiritual people ought to evaluate all things according to the Spirit. And that means that at the end of the day, that if everything God has told us in his word about marriage is true, then how could divorce possibly be anything less than a sin against the God who designed marriage in the first place? Now, marriage is meant to be a blessing for fellowship. It's meant to be a blessing for family. It's given by God to create stability for his children, for his children's children. And every time humanity rejects that pattern, it comes at the cost of sin against our God and harm against one another. So the answer, says the Lord, for the kind of temptation that trends in that direction is the discipline of spiritual watchfulness. This is our final thought today. There is a blessing in godly marriage, we've seen, and there is a sin in easy divorce, but God calls his children to the peace of a guarded spirit. The peace of a guarded spirit. Now, there are uh, pragmatic answers to the problem of divorce, of course. Uh, prog- uh, pragmatic answers to our, our uh, struggling and, and our failing marriages. There's talk therapy, there are regular date nights, there's couples counseling, there's church discipline. And as helpful as any of those things might be, and they might be helpful, as we've seen already, they can only ever at best be half of the story. So guard yourselves in your spirit, the Lord says. He says it twice. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. It's a spiritual issue. Just like every other important area of our lives, in marriage and in divorce, our choices will follow where our faith leads us first. It comes back to what we believe about the God who made us, what we believe about the God who joined us to our spouse in the first place. If we believe that God's intentions for us and for our marriage are what's best, we will follow him. We will submit to him. We will learn to trust him even when things are so unbearably difficult you could never have imagined it 30 years ago. But if we begin to believe that maybe God's holding out on us, if we suspect that maybe God hasn't told us the whole story, that that he can't be trusted with our happiness, Well, then we begin to give in to the temptation to trust ourselves rather than the God who made us. When we do that, when we begin to trust ourselves rather than the Lord, it becomes all that much easier to take all of those tiny little annoyances that show up in a marriage uh, and, and to make them something larger than they ought to be. They can become a drift in the wrong direction. And then a drift in the wrong directions can become a loss of tenderness and companionship. And then a loss in companionship can become that sneaking suspicion that maybe security and satisfaction can be found better outside of the marriage than it can be found inside. Maybe you'd be better off with a different spouse. 
Maybe you'd be better off with no spouse at all because the problem in this situation obviously is the one that you're with. And once you can get out of this situation, then all of your issues with marriage and relationship will just evaporate, won't they? But they won't. Because it's not a spousal issue, it's a spiritual issue. And if left unchecked, that same wandering, distrustful spirit will follow you out of that strained marriage. It will follow you through a contentious divorce. It will follow you back into the loneliness of singleness all over again. You see, the men of Malachi's day thought that a different wife, a new and a different exciting wife would be the answer to their problems. But the Lord is telling them that the problem is not their spouse, it's their spirit. It's a temptation to think that they know better than the Lord what is best for them and what is best for their marriage and their family. And so to a spiritual issue, God gives a spiritual answer. Guard yourselves and your spirit, says the Lord. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Be on guard against the sin in yourself as you deal with the one you're married to. Ultimately, he's telling them to learn that the God of their marriages can be trusted. And that's a lesson that you can't learn just by remembering those vows that you made so long ago. You can't learn that God can be trusted just by sitting together and having long talks and remembering how much you loved one another once upon a time. You can't remember and trust that God can be trusted with your marriage if all you do is listen to the pragmatic answers of the socioeconomists and, and, and all of the other psychologists and relationship experts. You won't even learn to trust the Lord through talk therapy or church discipline, helpful as those things may be. The only place that you can really learn to trust the God of your marriage is in the cross of Calvary. Because that's where the Lord shows us what real commitment looks like. That's where the Lord pledges to us his unbreakable promises of love and forgiveness for people who do not deserve it. That's where he shows us that we are the problem, but he's committed to us anyway. In Jesus Christ and in him crucified, God convinces us that he is able to handle the biggest issue that plagues our marriages. He's able to deal with our sin. And so I realize now at the end that it might sound simplistic, especially if you're the one who's struggling through a very difficult marriage. It may sound simplistic simply to turn and say, well, you've got to guard your spirit. You've got to have a closer walk with the Lord, but that's the answer. That's how you stave off that wandering want that goes in the direction of, of finding satisfaction outside of the marriage God's given you rather than inside of it. It's a daily discipline of, of going back and watching over your soul and going to the Lord. And so the Father calls us to look to the Son. First to find salvation for our souls. Then he calls us to look to the cross where he proves that he can be trusted. And he calls us to guard ourselves in the Spirit. To pray to him that he's the one who would keep us from faithfulness. Would you join me in prayer together? Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this word. We pray that uh, you would be speaking through it. Lord, we long for faithfulness, and we confess that it is not in us. 
We thank you that by your grace, probably many of the marriages represented in this room are good and thriving and flourishing in the spirit of the Lord and the power of your sanctification in husbands and wives. We realize that that is probably not the case for everyone. And so we pray that you would help us uh, to do the work of looking to you. Help us to do the work of trusting you. Give us your spirit, that our spirits would be guarded until the day of redemption, that our desires would be sanctified, that our marriages would be kept pure. Oh, Lord, you're the one who's able to do all that you command from your people. We ask that you would do it. We ask in Jesus' name.